Thank you for downloading this sermon. We hope you've been blessed by this ministry. If you'd like to give back, please invest in the future of Clearnote Church through our capital campaign, Faithful Through All Generations. To make a donation, visit clearnotebloomington.com give. Good morning. Happy birthday. Happy Mother's Day. Did anybody say Happy Mother's Day to anyone yet this morning? Did anybody get a Happy Mother's Day said to them? (laughs) Ben, put your hand down. Happy Mother's Day. Well, on Mother's Day, I don't know what it's like in your household, but uh, we, we plan for perfection, and then, and then try to s- somehow settle. Do you plan for perfection on Mother's Day? I'm talking to the moms now. How many of you realize that you won't have to touch a dish or pick anything up, or fix a plate, right? How many of you have that expectation? Okay, don't raise your hand. Maybe older mothers know better, I don't know. The fact is we love to romanticize about things like Mother's Day. And we like to think about having this perfect day We like to think about everything going fine and the food having the perfect temperature and everybody liking it and and mom kind of sitting on a cushion somewhere and uh, enjoying her day. But Mother's Day, like most things, doesn't really happen that way, right? Because our lives are messier than that. And they, they just are and they become messier than that. And one of the things that I particularly like about the Bible, about God's Word, is that uh, God doesn't withhold from us the messy stuff. We get all of it when we read God's Word. We get all of the good, we get all the bad. Well, we seem to get a lot of the bad often. A lot of the difficult things come through. And so the Bible usually sets you up. There's a long time often in the accounts with someone, uh, and this morning we're going to look at five different women, just kind of a quick look at their lives, but someone in the Bible goes through great difficulty, and then there's there's a a moment of uh, resolution. Often there's a time, just this catharsis of a moment where the thing happens that was meant to happen. And sometimes that's the end of the account, and sometimes it goes on and some more gnarly things happen. But but that's how the Bible is. It's how it comes to us. And it's, it's a long series of difficulty often followed by good. The Bible says that childbirth is this way, right? And in John 16, 21, it says, whenever a woman is in labor, she has pain because her hour has come. 
But when she gives birth to the child, she no longer remembers the anguish because of the joy that a child has been born into the world. Early in her first labor, my wife talked to my mother, I think it was on the phone, and she said, I don't think it's going to hurt very much. And my mother, who had given birth to seven children, said, Oh, honey, it's going to hurt. And then as the labor progressed, it did hurt. And Annie would look at me, and at one point she looked at me, and I don't know if she was squeezing my hand or, or what, but she looked at me and she said, I don't ever want to do this again. And I just was powerless, you know. Oh, what do I do? And then we went into the, the delivery and the delivery nurse took Ben and he and she put Ben into Annie's arms. And Annie looked at Ben and smiled. And then she looked at me and she said, let's have another one. (laughs) And that scripture has never been more confirmed in my life than in that five hours, five hours. I don't know if Annie wanted to romanticize about the pains of labor, but we always want to romanticize. We want to think that things are going to have this romantic ending. And life isn't that way, and certainly motherhood isn't that way. Being a a mother isn't a flower box full of wave petunias. That's not motherhood. Motherhood is very complex and very complicated. Motherhood is mourning sickness and stretch marks and painful labor and dirty, filthy diapers and endless feedings and spit up and more diapers and more feedings and more spit up and hospital visits and miscarriages and sometimes infant or child deaths. And it's not just that. Motherhood is bad grades and anger and silence, bad friends, rebellion. Motherhood is, is brash, reviling, and ambition. Motherhood is irresponsible passivity. Motherhood is, is dealing with the pains of a child viewing pornography, doing drugs, taking alcohol. Motherhood has a lot of hardship. It has a lot of difficulty. Last night we were at a school event and we saw a child of this church at the event, a child whose arm was already broken and in a cast, right? So. A small child with an arm in a cast, that kind of 
narrows it down quite a bit. And he was running toward the street, and there were cars clipping out, leaving the parking lot. And immediately his mother jumps and says, stop. But she doesn't just do that. She's already accelerating. Do you understand? She's already moving toward the child because it's not a simple matter of, of saying stop. It's the absolute assurance that she's going to intervene to see that that child is not hit by a car. And so she's on the move. She's going to intervene. She's taking increasingly desperate steps. Now, he did stop, and that's a good ending, just so you know. But it wasn't a romantic moment. It's not one of those cherubic faces with a handful of dandelions, here, mommy, you know. That's not the moment that it was. It was more the regular work of motherhood. It was more the day in and day out work of being a mom. And as I reflected on it later, it seemed a good placeholder for motherhood because moms have to have this constant maternal observation and readiness for intervention, for action at any moment. Because it is part of being maternal. It's just part of the work. And as you think about this, you think, well, that's a lot for moms to handle. Because it doesn't end, you know, it doesn't end. Well, you know, they turn 18 and you kick them out of the house and it doesn't end then. Because you think moms stop thinking about their children. We're concentrating on moms today. Okay, just so you know. Anybody not catch that? Do you think moms stop because they turn 18, because they move out of the house? No, no, no. Moms continue. They continue to want to intervene. They continue to want to say stop. They continue to want to run out and and, and check the forward motion to destruction. And so it continues in their lives, travailing over these children that they travailed to bring into the world. And how do they survive? How do they live before God? Well, as I said, I want to look at some women, five women from the Old Testament whose lives weren't much to romanticize about, but who all received triumphs from the Lord, who all received blessings from the Lord. I want to start with Sarah, the wife of Abraham. Sarah was Abraham's half-sister, so not his mother's daughter, but his father's daughter, okay? And they married and they moved And Sarah's life was one of following her nomadic husband everywhere he went. So it's kind of like caravan life. They just moved and moved and moved and moved and moved. That in itself has some difficulty associated with it, right? And if that's not bad enough, the fact that she was very beautiful made her husband afraid that a man might kill him as he traveled along. A man might kill him in order to take his wife from him because she was very beautiful. So he had a habit of passing her off as his sister. And it, it is true, she was a half-sister, but she was not just a half-sister, she was his wife. But he would pass her off to people and say, well, she's my sister. And this got Sarah in some, 
difficult problems. And we don't usually think about the problem that it created for Sarah. We're usually thinking about Abraham and how much of a louse he was for doing this, right? But we're not thinking about the reality of the predicament that Sarah found herself in, I think at least twice that we know of, where she's in a house, in a room, in a palace somewhere with a guy who's thinking, I'm going to have her for my wife. And for all she knows, she's going to have to consummate this thing. That's difficult. That's very difficult. I don't think Sarah wanted that to be reality. I think that was a very difficult thing. And on top of that, Sarah did not have children, and she desperately, desperately wanted children. She wanted to have children. In fact, she wanted children so badly that she was willing to take matters into her own hands, and she was willing to take her handmaid and give the handmaid to the husband in order to have children for her. And that turned out to be incredibly painful for her. That turned out to bring all kinds of difficulty on her because the child was born and then she was, she was uh, uh, ridiculed by the handmaid and she was more jealous and more sorry that she had no children than she ever was before. And here was Sarah. Now, I want you to think as I'm talking about these women, you think Okay, so none of you married your half-brother, ladies. I don't think that's happened here. But for the most part, in all of these accounts, you're going to find some bizarre, bizarre stuff, and it's all here in this room. It's not just stuff that happened in the Old Testament. It's stuff that happens here. Your lives are bizarre. I know a lot about it. And your lives are bizarre. So is mine. So is my wife's life. Our lives are bizarre, and they're bizarre because of sin. And that was true in these cases as well. So what happens with Sarah? Prior to the destruction of Sodom, the angel of the Lord says to Abraham, he's there with Abraham, and he says, I will surely return to you at this time next year, and behold, Sarah, your wife, will have a son. And Sarah was listening at the tent of the door, which was behind him. Okay, now, Sarah and Abraham were old, advanced in age. Sarah was past childbearing. Well, that's what it says in Genesis 18. In Romans 4, when it talks about Sarah, it says her womb was dead. That's what it says. Her womb was dead. And so Sarah, when she heard the angel of the Lord say this, The account says she laughed to herself saying, after I have become old, shall I have pleasure? My Lord being old also, her Lord at that point meaning Abraham. And then the Lord said to Abraham, why did Sarah laugh saying, shall I indeed bear a son when I am so old? Is anything too difficult for the Lord? At the appointed time I will return to you at this time next year and Sarah will have a son. Sarah denied it, however, saying, I didn't laugh, for she was afraid. And he said, no, but you did laugh. You did laugh. And so it says in Genesis 21, the Lord took note of Sarah as he had said, and the Lord did for Sarah as he had promised. So Sarah conceived and bore a son to Abraham in his old age at the appointed time of which God had spoken to him. 
Now Abraham was 100 years old when his son Isaac was born to him. And Sarah said, God has made laughter for me. Everyone who hears will laugh with me. And she said, who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children? Yet I have borne him a son in his old age. And when the angel made the promise to Sarah, she was 90 years old. She was 90 years old. And she lived to be 127, so she got to enjoy many years with Isaac. And there were some difficulties that followed, right? Can you imagine Abraham and Isaac coming back from the sacrifice if she didn't find out till afterwards that Abraham had taken Isaac up to the mountain to sacrifice him? What kind of response a mother might have in, those, in that situation? One who, a mother who had waited till she was 90 for a child? What do you mean you were gonna sacrifice him? But Sarah did believe God, and she was privileged to be the mother of Isaac. The second woman I want us to look at is Leah. Leah. You might be surprised to hear me say that Leah is one of my favorite biblical persons of all. Leah. And But let me tell you about some of the pain of Leah's life. First of all, she was homely. She was homely. Well, why was that painful? It was painful in part because when Jacob came and arrived at their household and he wanted a wife, he didn't even consider Leah because Rachel was pretty. And so Jacob just said, no, no, I want Rachel. And so Leah, right away, that's going to make you feel good, right? That's going to make somebody feel good. Well, then it goes on. They go to, they go to have the marriage, and, and what, does, what happens but that Leah is, you know, come here, Leah. Come here, Leah. We're going to play the old switcheroo right? And so there weren't any, there weren't any uh, solar lights out there. It was dark, and they'd drink probably, and, and when they played the switcheroo, Leah goes in to Jacob, and in the morning, the wonderful line, in the morning, behold, Leah, Right? And then how did she feel? Because the moment he realized, she, first of all, she was made to participate in the deception, and then the moment he realized he had been deceived, the first thing he does is say, what? Not Leah. I wanted Rachel. That makes you feel good on the morning after your wedding is consummated, right? After your marriage. And so it goes on, and so the two wives, it's obvious that, that Jacob loves Rachel. And he demonstrates this over and over again through their lives. And so God sees that Jacob loves Rachel, and it says that he, because of this, he opened Leah's womb. 
And she has first this child and then this child, four sons right in a row, one, two, three, four. The first three, every time she has a child, she thanks the Lord and says, now my husband will love me. She has a child, now my husband will love me. I've had a third child, now my husband will love me. Is there a theme that you're seeing developing in her life? That Leah lives with this awful feeling of not being loved. But then she has her fourth son, and his name is what? Anybody know right off? Judah, which is significant for a lot of reasons because of who comes from Judah, right? She has her fourth son, and she says what? She says, this time I will praise the Lord. Something happened. Some catharsis in her life happened at that moment. And she said, this time I will praise the Lord. And it wasn't that she ended, it ended all of her feelings of, of, uh, of sadness. It wasn't that she'd ever took things into her own hands. She did. They did, they did the thing of giving their, their handmaids to Jacob also, right? It wasn't that she never thought again about being loved. I mean, think about it. Even when uh, Jacob was coming back to see his father before Isaac died, when he would group the belongings on the way back, he grouped the, the servants and the sheep and the goats, and then he had Leah and all her children in a group, and they went, and he left himself with Rachel at the end, right? So even the, the uh, uh, humiliation at going back to see his father, Leah had to deal with the fact that she was second rate. But there's something you gotta see about Leah. She bore six of the 12 patriarchs from her own body, six of them. And that included, as I said, Judah, from whom the line of Christ would come. She literally said, this time I will praise the Lord, which is an, a marvelous statement of faith on her part, given her circumstances. And one of the things that most people don't realize that I just absolutely think is fun is that when he died, Jacob was buried with Leah. Did you know that? That there was a tomb that Abraham had purchased in which Abraham and Sarah were buried and then Isaac and Rebekah were buried and then Jacob and Leah, first Leah and then Jacob were buried in that tomb. And so in the end, she gets so many blessings from her pain and God does care for her and it's not that God didn't care for Rachel but I think Leah is just such a beautiful picture for us in understanding a hard, hard life, hard scrabble. The next person I want us to look at is a difficult one because this, this account is gnarly, really gnarly, okay? And this account, it, it involves a woman named Tamar. Judah grows up and he has sons of his own. And Judah takes a wife for his oldest son. And so he takes a wife, her name is Tamar. 
Tamar is married to him, and the Bible just says that he does something that's evil. We don't know what it is, but he does something so evil that God intervenes with judgment immediately and kills him. So her husband didn't just die. Her husband was judged and killed by God. So what Judah does at that time is the the thing that was appropriate to do in that time and in that day and under their customs and laws. He took his second son and he gave him to Tamar to raise up children for his brother. That was what they did. So Judah took Onan and gave him to Tamar. And then what does Onan do? Well, the Scripture says he commits coitus interruptus because he doesn't want to raise up a child to his brother. And so immediately, again, God says, this is wicked. And he kills Onan, strikes him dead. So you've got this woman who's now had two husbands. Both of them have been wicked, and both of them have been struck dead. And Judah has one more son. And, and Judah's thinking, ah, oh, three strikes, I have no more sons, right? And so he says to Tamar, you go to your father's house, you spend some time there, and then eventually I'll give you my last son. So she does, she believes him, and she goes to the house, and she waits, and she waits, and she waits. And she realizes that there is no son coming to her now. She has the promise of the son. She has the right to the son. She desperately desires to have a child. And she realizes there's no son coming to her. And so what does she do? Well, this is gnarly. She dresses like a prostitute. After Judah's wife dies, Judah goes to seek a prostitute. She knows about it apparently, dresses as a prostitute, positions herself outside of the town where he goes, and he solicits her for prostitution. And he goes into her, and a, and a baby, not one baby, but two are conceived, twins. Okay, then he leaves, and if you know the account, you know that he sends, for, he sends to pay the prostitute and she's not there, and everybody says, there's no prostitute, and he feels kind of stupid, right? Because he wants to pay the prostitute, but there's no prostitute. So he just kind of says, let's hush it all up. And three months later, he's told that Tamar, his daughter-in-law, still considered his daughter-in-law, he's told that Tamar, his daughter-in-law, is pregnant from prostitution. And so he says, well, let's kill her. We should kill her. Well, if you know the account, you know that he had given her some, some securities when he had been with her. One, I think, was his, his rod, and the other was a signet ring, I think. And so she, when she found out that he wanted her to, be, to die, she sent him the rod and the signet ring, and she said simply, I'm pregnant by the man to whom these belong. And of course, he immediately saw that he had been wrong by not giving her, his third son to her. And what he says is, she is more righteous than I am. And out of her womb comes Perez and Zerah. She's not killed. 
he never has relations with her again, but she gives birth to those two sons, Perez and uh, Zerah, is that what it is? Yeah, Zerah. And again, she has the honor through this gnarly, nasty process that had happened, she has the honor of being a woman who is, gives birth to one who is an ancestor in the line of Christ. And that's Tamar. Now, are you with me? You're saying, oh no, none of our lives are that gnarly. And I'd say, yep, you may not know it, but some of our lives are that gnarly. Okay? And certainly lives of people around us are that gnarly. You know, God is amazing because He can take such wickedness and sin and destruction and pain and bring about the, the delivery of the Redeemer out of it. He is amazing. He's absolutely amazing. The last two women I want to talk about are Naomi and Ruth. And spending a little more time probably on Naomi, or it's my hope to. Usually when you read the book of Ruth, you read about Ruth, because Ruth says, wherever you go, I'll go, and your people will be my people, and your God, my God, and that's wonderful. That's a statement of faith. It's absolutely fantastic. But if you think about the sorrow that surrounds all of that, that Naomi goes into Moab with her husband and sons to escape the... the, uh, famine, and that she gets in Moab, and first her husband dies, but they, they had taken two, son, two wives, for each, one for each of their sons. First her husband dies, and then both of her sons died, so she's left this widow woman with two daughter-in-laws with nothing. She's not even in her ancestral country. She's not even able to uh, negotiate the help she could get from her, her husband's ancestral property back in Israel. So she determines that's what I'll do. She's, she's in bitter, not bitter, she's in, in desperate sorrow, right? And so the girls say, we'll go back with you, but only Ruth finally does. Ruth says, I don't care what you tell me, I'm going with you. And so she goes back. And as they are there in, uh, in the city, uh, isn't it Bethlehem? They're there and they're Uh, Ruth is gleaning in the fields to get food for them, and she meets Boaz. And then I don't know if you want to call this Naomi taking matters into her own hands or not, but you know what she does. She gives Ruth careful instructions about how to get that man, right? And it's fascinating. Now you do this, and you do this, and you go do that, and then when she knows that the man is hooked, it's just funny. In my mind, it's, it's kind of humorous that uh, Ruth says to her, well, he said this and he said that. And she says, oh, he won't rest until he's got this, job, this deal done. And it's just fascinating because it was absolutely what happened. He won't rest. And so what ends up happening is that Ruth marries Boaz and God gives them a son. And the account says that the women that knew Naomi that surrounded her named the son. And that Naomi became his nurse. And that they said, Naomi has a son. 
That's what they said. And of course, Obed became the grandfather of King David. And so again, in the ancestry of Jesus Christ and David, through whom we have so many of the Psalms that we read and love and and we sing. So you have these women, and do you think there are more in the Bible? I mean, the stories get more bizarre, and there's a lot more stories, a lot more accounts. Over and over again, women who have faith in God who have a resource for their lives. It's not a perfect faith, but it's, it is a growing faith. It's an imperfect and growing faith. And they had faith in other things as well. They, they had faith in uh, their husbands. They had faith in money. They had faith in their health. They had faith in their children. They had faith in what they could do by their own hands, by their own designs. You know that they were trusting a lot of things, but true to all of them is that they didn't settle for faith in those things, they settled only for faith, finally for faith in God. And that dictated the actions of their lives. They learned often that taking matters into your own hands leads to great sorrow. And they learned that faith is futile if it's not faith in the one who is faithful. Hebrews 11, 11 says, by faith, even Sarah herself received ability to conceive even beyond the proper time of life since she considered him faithful who had promised. Now, the account says she laughed. And we can interpret that fairly as she was laughing with disbelief, but she might have been laughing with incredulity, you know, just what? I'm so old. But the fact is that she also had faith in the promise, in the one who made the promise. 1 Peter 1, 20 and 21 read, for he was forsaken before the, I'm sorry, for he was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but has appeared in these last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. And this is the direction of our lives. This is the trajectory. It's true of everyone. It's true of you mothers this morning. Your faith and hope are in God. It was truly, it was clearly true of Sarah. As the scripture says in 1 Peter, in the same way you wives be submissive to your own husbands, so that even if any of them are disobedient to the word, they may be won without a word by the behavior of their wives as they observe your chaste and respectful behavior. Your adornment must not be merely external, braiding the hair and wearing gold jewelry or putting on dresses, but let it be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable quality of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is precious in the sight of God. For in this way, in former times, the holy women also who hoped in God used to adorn themselves, being submissive to their own husbands, just as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, 
and you have, becoming her, you have become her children if you do what is right without being frightened by any fear. And so, moms, would you be children of Sarah? Would you be children of Sarah? Would you be mothers in Israel? Would you do what is right without being frightened by any fear? Uh, and I wanted, let's have the uh, quid pro quo or the small print or whatever. If you're here this morning and you're a mother, uh, we love the fact that you're a mother, we're grateful, but there are women here this morning who've never married and lived their whole lives, they've not had children. But that doesn't dismiss you from these verses. The verses don't particularly pertain to motherhood or motherhood alone. They pertain to womanhood and godliness as a woman. And a woman who has faith in God, who, has, uh, who does what is right without being frightened by any fear, is a child of Sarah, whether she has a husband or whether she has children. And she becomes a mother in Israel. We have so many women in this church who I've watched through the years as they, have, they themselves have no children. They've never had a child born from their bodies but I've seen them be mothers to our children over and over again and be strong mothers in Israel. And so they are. But if you desire to be a mother in Israel, you have to be like Sarah. You have to live with faith and hope and then you will learn not to be frightened. You'll do what is right and not be frightened by any fear. I mean, we could take that, that's another one of those little snippets out of the Bible. We could take that and and put it on a plaque and put it above our door at our house. Uh, this is the house where we do what is right without being frightened by, by any fear. But the specific application this morning is, while we can by connection say it's for all of us, the specific application in the Scripture and to our, and to our sermon is to mothers. Is to mothers. Think about those women that we've heard about this morning, those women from the Old Testament, how they lived their lives. And you know, there was fear, but they did what was right. They continued to work, growing in faith, doing what was right. And so we must also. God bless you, women. God bless you. Mothers in Israel, we're thankful for you. So thankful for you. Let's pray.